1: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it's my honor to welcome back our guest from last week, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. He holds a PhD. in entomology from the University of Illinois. He's an agroecologist, an insect ecologist, and research entomologist with more than 20 years' experience, most recently at the USDA's North Central Agricultural Research Lab in Brookings, South Dakota. Dr. Lundgren received the prestigious Presidential Early Career Award for Science and Engineering, which just happens to be the highest honor given to young scientists by the office of the president. He received other early career scientists' award, but now suddenly Dr. Lundgren finds himself in a situation where he has left the lab and he has started his own farm. And just to recap a bit from last week, Dr. Lundgren, would you just describe a little bit about your research and what were the events leading to your decision to go independent?
0: Well, first off, thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. So my research focuses on two central themes. One is evaluating the safety of farm management and pest management so especially things like genetically modified crops and pesticides and how they may be affecting the environment. And then the other aspect of my research is developing more sustainable solutions to pest management that are based on ecological principles. So I guess that my choice to go a different direction was really driven by the farmers and the beekeepers I think that there's a real need for applied research and science that can be used to innovate agriculture rather than maintain the current paradigm of food production. And I think that these sorts of transformational changes that we need for our food production for society to move forward and to improve both environmental and human health, these sorts of transformational changes, they don't come from the government, and they don't come from large research entities. They come from the bottom up. And so I was starting to see that the farmers were leading the science, and the science was oftentimes hampering the innovation of agriculture rather than fostering it. And I made the sort of high-risk decision, I guess, to really invest the rest of my life into trying to bridge the gap between science and application so that we can take the innovative science that's going on from some great agroecology and make it something that farmers that are on the leading edge can apply and take what they're doing and make it scalable and transferable to a wide swath of farming operations.
1: I really admire your convictions to solving our problems with regard to food and agriculture. I do want to just jump back to something that you said, though, that I thought was really interesting that I think we all need to think about a little bit more, and that is you mentioned that you felt that science was hampering ag research. What did you mean by that?
0: Well, I think that the farmers that are on the leading edge of regenerative agriculture, where they're actually regenerating soil, and biodiversity rather than simply sustaining a degraded resource they're they're building it again i think that that's key but the guys that are on, and the gals that are on the front edge of this they're observing things the beekeepers are too i mean the beekeepers were observing things in the environment they're great natural historians right mhm and the science wasn't supporting that the scientists couldn't figure out how to make certain practices like cover cropping in the panhandle of nebraska or where it's very arid or something the farmers are doing this right but the <laughs> science on a research farm was not able to mimic those same results and so as a result the farm insurance won't insure farmers that are interested in in applying cover crops in this area because the research says that it can't happen but the farmers are doing it anyway so it really is hampering this innovation yeah I mean, we're just going through this with Farm Service Agency, which is a loan program. And if you're trying to do something really innovative that's weird, that's not corn, soybeans, and cows, then it becomes much more of a chore to try to justify getting a loan, Mm -hmm. for example. So
1: do you think it's that the scientists at our land-grant institutions, which are really designed to have this kind of direct communication with farmers, is it that the scientists aren't asking the right questions or doing the right research or have enough funding to do the kind of work that you want to do on Blue Dasher Farm?
0: I think that there's... So, number one is I'm painting with a very broad brush, and I should be very clear about that, okay? I mean, there are excellent scientists that are really interested in some of these same ideas. But also, what we're talking about is a major paradigm shift. Yeah. And that is... That's hard to find funding for, and it's also putting your career on the line. If you're questioning some of these ideas about the current paradigm, mm-hmm. then, yeah, then you're painting a target on your back. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the case with science, hasn't it? I mean, through the millennia. Sure. If the scientists that are really questioned the current dogma tend to be burned at the stake.
1: Well, I Literally. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate the fact that you're entrepreneurial, and I appreciate the fact that you're willing or brave enough to question that paradigm, and I wish more of us did that. I think that's what really supports a free democratic society. But let me go back and also review some of the topics that we also touched on last week, and that was I was very much impressed by your knowledge of the neonicotinoid pesticides and shocked by the extensiveness that they are used. And I just want to make sure that our listeners also share my emotions here. Can you tell me a little bit more about why the neonicotinoid pesticides are especially problematic and just how many crops get the seed coating with these pesticides?
0: So neonicotinoids are a class of insecticides that are most often put on the seed It's like a seed coating and then as that plant develops, that crop plant develops, it's transmitted throughout the, throughout the plants from root to, to pollen. So these are extensively used and one number that I've calculated out is nearly 13% of the terrestrial land surface of our country is treated with one of three forms of neonicotinoid seed treatment. One of the issues is that only 2 to 20 percent of the active compound is taken up by the crop plant. The question then becomes is where is the 80 to 98 percent of the compound going that's not being taken up by the crop plant? And we're finding it in the water, and we're finding it in the soil, and we're finding it in plants that haven't been treated, like in field margins and things. So this is a, a very major issue. And perhaps what's particularly um, frustrating is that the science doesn't necessarily support the use of these having a benefit for the farmers themselves. Wow. The yield benefits of neonicotinoid seed treatments are not well substantiated in many systems. And farmers are spending money on these things whether they when they may or may not actually be helping them.
1: So why are we using them?
0: Well, I think that there's a disconnect, right? Well, between the scientific information that could be used to really help farmers and that's not being communicated i think a lot of the information that farmers end up using tends to be from the people that are selling them a product yeah and and those relationships are very strong and understandably so i think scientists need to start fostering those relationships with producers too
1: yeah i agree and to question always the source of our messages. Where do they come from, who owns them, and who profits from them? In a conversation that we had had, you had told me that just so people understand the extensiveness of their use, we've got corn, cotton, alfalfa, and wheat that all have treatments with these neonicotinoid pesticides. And that troubles me because of the extensive use. And also, if you look at some of the public health literature, there are some researchers, for example, there's a researcher at Harvard that is looking at this particular pesticide as well as others and thinking about, well, if it affects insects in one way, how is it also affecting humans who are consuming it?
0: Mm -hmm. I think that these are great questions that we really need to be answering and you know this better than anybody And that uh, there's a lot of human health concerns right now. And science is starting to reveal that these, you know, things like food intolerance and autoimmune diseases and autism rates, are, are people are starting to realize what's going on here. And there is some science that's suggesting that this may be linked to our food production systems. And that may not be the only cause, but I think that it is something that we really need to understand people need to be considering for sure.
1: Yeah, I know it's so hard to find a smoking gun because there's just such a large chemical soup that we all swim in these days, but I do think that when we identify a product, as you have done, a particular pesticide, that looks pretty likely that it causes harm to our precious pollinators, it would seem to me that we would take cautionary steps and remove that from our food and agriculture system. And I think this is a good time to launch into your Blue Dasher Farm project and how the work that you're doing there will give us a better way.
0: Right. Well, yeah, so I think that a way forward is really just to take a step back and get out of the way of innovation. And one of the things that's been revealed to me recently is that there are farmers out there that are doing some amazing things in terms of using ecological principles to farm. Instead of waking up in the morning and deciding what needs to be killed in their fields, they're waking up and thinking about what can be grown in their fields and using biodiversity as the basis for, for a lot of what they're doing. Amazing things happening and just inspiring. And I think it's the answer. Okay, yeah. I mean, they're not going organic necessarily, although I have a lot of respect for organic. They will occasionally use a pesticide if they need to, but what they're finding is that as these systems that they're developing are stabilizing, they don't need a lot of these agrochemicals anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so what my plan is, is to take what it is that they're doing and establish a network of research, education, and demonstration farms across the country where we can use these to conduct cutting-edge research on regenerative agriculture and asking these sorts of questions to make it easier for the innovators to have the answers that they need, but then also make these learning centers where we can train the next generation of scientists as well as farmers by pairing together the top agroecologists in the world with the most innovative producers and then having immersion workshops where they can learn on a particular topic or we can have field day events. And then finally, we'll have – I mean, this is a place where people can see some of these innovative practices happening. And you establish these hubs, these nodes throughout the country, and I think what we're going to end up seeing is the farmers in those regions and areas are going to start changing their practices because they're going to see that these practices, number one, they're not as intimidating as as they initially sound. And, And number two, that these farms are going to be making money. Probably, as much, if not more, than a lot of what the area farmers are making in, in their operations on the same amount of land, so I think that this is going to be a really important future, establishing centers for excellence in regenerative agriculture
1: listeners, if you 're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined today by Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. Ph.D. entomologist, agroecologist, insect ecologist, and researcher for more than 20 years, going off on his own and setting up a fabulous, as you say, demonstration farm and a true hub of learning to work within natural systems. I want to commend you on the right time being now and recognizing that with the climate talks that are going on. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how what you plan to do on Blue Dasher Farm will help benefit farmers as we face more climate challenges.
0: Right. Well, I think that a lot of the problems that we tend to be facing on this planet, I mean, there's some substantial problems. We're facing things like climate change, like you mentioned. We're facing pollution. We're facing human health problems, invasive species. The fact that 40% of the land surface of the world is devoted to agro-ecosystems, 40%. That makes agro-ecosystems the largest biome on planet Earth. And what that means to me is that if we're going to be solving these problems, we're going to need to be doing it on our agro-ecosystems. So, for example, I'm involved with Peter Bick. He's at Arizona State University, and he's leading an effort to look at how we can use our grazing schemes in order to sequester carbon while producing healthier meat. And through mob grazing, there's a number of really progressive ranchers that are what's called adaptive grazing management plans, multi-paddock grazing management plans. Mm -hmm. And essentially what this is is they're putting a lot of cows in a small area of pasture, and they're allowing those cows to consume the plant forage And then they move those cows frequently. And then they allow that pasture to rest. And what happens is that that stimulates the forbs and grasses into producing a tremendous amount of biomass and biodiversity. And as that's happening, what's happening is those plants are bringing the carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it back down into the earth. Some of the calculations are astounding as far as if we were to devote even 20% of the rangeland to this management scheme, we could offset most of our carbon emissions in the United States. Wow. I mean, that's using agriculture. And not only that, but these are grass-finished animals that are healthier for you at the end of the day.
1: Absolutely.
0: And you can use that pasture as a source for pollinator habitat because it's untreated, exposing the environment to fewer pesticides because you don't have to put those dewormers in your animals anymore because you have such a healthy dung community. I mean, these guys are seeing their dung pads disappearing in the rates of, you know, like four to seven days or something like that. It's insane. So to me, that's one really great example of how we can use food production systems to combat world problems. Right. If you're not needing to use agrochemicals like chemical fertilizers, that many of which are just running off into our water systems, then this is another major hurdle that the planet is facing overcome. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, on your website, and I want all of our listeners to visit Blue Dasher Farm, and there's also an Indiegogo campaign that is time-sensitive, although I think that your funding scheme for this farm, I wish it was taxpayer-supported because as a taxpayer, I would love for my dollars to be Going to support what you're doing rather than to support, say, the ethanol industry, which doesn't seem to be helping our biodiversity problem, but that's another conversation. But <laughs> I want people to know that they can go to www.indiegogo.com and then there's a backslash projects, backslash blue dash dasher dash farm. And I think you need that little check mark I'll make sure that this website is available, connected with your interviews, Dr. Lundgren, because the way you're describing the farm sounds wonderful, but I can't recommend the website enough. There's a video of you describing what you hope to do, and it's extremely convincing in terms of if we're needing a a little dose of hope, I think we can get it from Blue Dasher Farm. Now, one of the projects... Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. One of the projects that you have listed that you're going to work on initially has to do with the honeybee problem. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that, related to the neonicotinoid pesticides and also what you've noticed with regard to biodiversity and what you've learned from beekeepers.
0: Right. So the honeybee industry is actually facing a number of different constraints right now, from diseases to new pests like varroa mite to lack of forage things for the bees to eat, flowers in the landscape, to pesticide exposures. And all of these are congealing to affect pollinators and the honey industry as well. And guess what? I mean, the honeybees are the canaries in the coal mine. And if things are affecting the honeybees, then either we are being affected and we don't know it or we're going to be real soon. So solving this bee problem is a much bigger deal than I think a lot of people realize. Yeah. So what we're planning on doing is I think that it comes down to the bee problem is really an issue of biodiversity in our food systems. So we've simplified the landscape so much, and the only way that we can maintain these simplified food production systems is with chemical inputs. So we're going to flip it around. There's a lot of interest right now in cover crops. There's a lot of interest in conservation strips, but there's no domestic sources of seed for these things. So what we're going to plan on doing as one of our first explorations of this is we're going to grow some of these plants that are great bee plants in terms of honey production. We're going to grow those for seed. And then while we're growing these high-value crops for seed and then selling the seed at a reduced rate so we can just flood the market with cover crop seeds so farmers don't have that hindrance of when they're considering going down this road of seed costs. And we're also going to be taking off as a honey crop off of the same piece of land that's untreated. And so we can produce two revenue streams off of the same piece of land, and both of which are very high value. So I think that that's, a, that's the sort of revenue stacking schemes that we need to be doing on our farms to increase the resilience so that if you do have a situation where corn prices are low of one particular year, then you know what? That doesn't hurt you so much because you've got, you're grazing livestock on that same land or you're raising a honey crop off of that same land or you're intercropping or you're thinking outside of the box and growing something besides just what everybody else in your county is. So these revenue stacking schemes where we're taking off multiple crops or multiple revenue streams from a single operation, gosh, that makes your whole operation so much more profitable, and it ends up being better for the environment and producing potentially healthier food if you're doing it right. So I want you know airplanes that are flying over Brookings and dual counties in South Dakota to look down and be like, what the hell are all those flowers doing down there? Because to me that's the situation that you can see the imprint of what these demonstration farms are going to be able to do. And the magnitude of the effects.
1: I think you touch on something that's really important, and that is agricultural literacy. And I hope that your farm will help expand that. So, for example, only because of who I've interviewed, people like yourself, have I learned that when I see earth that's exposed and without a cover crop on it, I know now to look at that and say, ouch, that's not the best thing for the Earth or for the planet. But that took a level of interviews, and I wish that more people understood what they were looking at. Another example is when I drive through Iowa, and I see nothing but miles and miles of corn and soybeans, and I get a little frightened with that because I realize that the loss of biodiversity is really putting us all at risk with regard to having a safe and, you know, this idea of food security, a resilient food system. So, talk to me a little bit about your education schemes and how you plan to have great ripple effects with what you're doing.
0: Well, I think it's going to be key to be using the innovative farmers as the education tools because they are able to develop relationships within their communities that are going to be so much stronger than just relying on a few key scientists or a few key innovators. So developing these champions is going to be so important in moving forward. So we're going to educate the key members of those communities. And to the fact that, you know, okay, number one, stop tillage. Number two, cover the soil. Number three, try to integrate livestock or other revenue streams into your cropping arrangements and stuff like that. I mean, these are simple philosophies, but then they can adapt those to local and regional needs so that it removes barriers. You know, that's what we need to do. We need to, when farmers are ready to make that change to a more ecologically sound method of food production, I want the answers to be right there in front of them and ready for them in a book-style approach that just makes it easy, you Mm -hmm. know, so that they don't have to worry about that, because farmers can be very risk-averse, and understandably so. Right. So we need to remove those barriers, don't we?
1: Yeah, and I think one of the barriers is the fact that it's difficult to step outside the paradigm, as you mentioned earlier, and now we're asking members of small rural communities to step outside that paradigm and perhaps face some opposition from the larger community that might say, hey, you're crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and the Blue Dasher Farm is a perfect example of that. I mean, what I'm doing by leaving a good career with, within USDA ARS is crazy, but I think it's also necessary and it's so important in order to advance how we're producing food. People need to not just talk about making changes. They need to step up and make those changes. They need to educate themselves and just stand up for what they believe is right, you know, with action, not just words.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I've been asking the questions and somewhat leading this conversation. And I want to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners anything that you want them to go home with.
0: Well, I guess that, number one, we are on the cusp of a movement in this country. I think that there's enough of an awareness from consumers and from beekeepers and from ranchers and from farmers that we need a better way. And I think that the answer is fairly clear in what it is that we need to do and now we just need to make it happen, and I think that the time is right for that. So yeah, we're planting a flag with Blue Desert Farm for people to rally around, and i I really hope that I hope that we can use it to make a difference.
1: Well, I think you're absolutely going to make a difference, Dr. Lundgren, and you mentioned the word necessary. I think it's necessary from an agricultural perspective. But it's absolutely necessary from a public health perspective too. So I want to direct our listeners to your Indiegogo.com site again. That's I think you can get there. I've I found your site simply by going to Blue Dasher Farm. It's a beautiful website, yeah. and I think you'll probably be funding this for its entire existence. Is that right?
0: Um, yeah, it can go on the. Official campaign ends at the end of January, but it may extend on if Indiegogo gives us the gives us the green light on that.
1: So. Well, just very quickly, what is your support scheme for this farm? You mentioned the seeds.
0: Uh, right. So we're going to try to support ourselves off of a farm. Through education, so giving presentations for grower groups and things like that that are interested, in and then having short courses that can generate a little bit of revenue to help support everything. And then we also are going to be able to use competitive research grants. Great. Because of the structure of the company, I mean, a lot of my research program right now is funded off of competitive research grants, and now I just, I can still be competitive for those, and so we're going to give it a different try, or a try with wearing a different hat.
1: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Lundgren, I want to thank you again for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, agroecologist, insect ecologist, and the proud innovator behind Blue Dasher Farm. Thank you again for being with me.
0: Thank you.